Chapter 4 In France and Poland While Helena was fighting her own battles with the Nazis, Franz and the pioneers were building bridges 50 miles from the French border. Hitler's plan was to invade France. The French, of course, had long anticipated something like this. For the past 11 years, they had been reinforcing their border areas with a series of forts stretching 87 miles. This was the famous Maginot Line, the most expensive, most elaborate network of fortifications ever built. The entire network was air-conditioned, and electric trains hundreds of feet below ground transported the half-million soldiers stationed there, from barrack to gun carriage, from arsenal to canteen, to cinema and sunray rooms. The French thought that the Maginot Line was impregnable, but in their complacency they had not taken into account the mighty German air force, the Luftwaffe. On May 10, 1940, Hitler attacked the Maginot Line with a tremendous number of dive bombers. The next day, 50 panzer and infantry divisions broke through. The French army, in shock, offered little resistance. Within five weeks, their strength was broken, and the German Wehrmacht had reached Paris and was staging a victory parade down the Champs-Élysées, which Hitler himself attended. That same May, the pioneers were ordered to leave Nierstein, where they had been stationed for the last nine months. Yet even as they crossed their own pontoon bridge for the last time and boarded a train, they did not know what their destination was. Curiously, Franz stared out the windows to catch the names on station signboards. Scheid, Glittersdorf, Saaralben, Saaralben. Now he knew that they were in Saarland area very close to the French border. But the train didn't stop there. It finally rolled to a stop in Sarkemund, fifty miles inside France. Even though they were only a day's journey from home, the men were now in enemy territory and felt a million miles away. The citizens of Sarkemund had been evacuated. Heavenly Father, Franz prayed, with the local people gone, I now have no way to trade food. You know that I have committed myself to eat only what is clean in your eyes. Please, show me what to do. In the supper line with Karl Hoffmann that evening, Franz noticed a tall, thin man doling out the portions. Who's that? he inquired. That's the new assistant cook, Karl said. The regular one got sick and had to be replaced. His name is Willy Fischer. Seems to be a really nice guy. He's skinny, Karl nodded. He looks like a beanpole, but look at it this way. It makes it harder for the bullets to hit him. When it was Franz's turn, he refused his ration of cold cuts and took only the bread. Billy glanced at him in mild surprise, but said nothing. However, day after day, as Franz refused pork and lard, Billy became curious. Finally, while slapping a serving of mashed potatoes onto Franz's plate, Billy whispered, Stop by and see me later when I am done serving food. Wondering what Vili could want, Franz went to meet him. Hey, soldier, said Vili. I notice you don't eat pork. Do you have a health problem? No, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist and I follow the health laws that God gave us in the Bible. Vili raised his eyebrows. He stared at Franz for a moment. Well, he finally said, I don't know anything about that, but I don't want you to have to go hungry. He glanced left and right and lowered his voice. I'm going to help you out. All you have to do is to arrange to go through the line last. 
and whenever we have pork or lard, I'll give you something else as a substitute, if I can. True to his word, instead of two ounces of butter twice a week, Willy gave Franz four ounces every night. When sausage or cold cuts were served, Franz got a double portion of cheese, or occasionally a can of sardines. Evidently, God had chosen Willy to take care of his diet. The pioneers were ordered to build bridges across the rivers Blies, Saw, and Moda, as well as many of the smaller tributaries and canals in the area. Courage was high. After spanning the Rhine, these small rivers were child's play. However, they soon discovered new challenges. As they probed the bottom of the Blies for the best location for the placement of the trestles, they were stunned by a deafening roar, followed by a fountain of water that shot high into the air. The French soldiers during their hasty retreat had still taken time to plant water mines in the French waterways. Now the pioneers had to employ mine sweepers before any building could commence, and German guards patrolled the riverbanks at night to prevent further trouble. As part of the occupational forces in France, the pioneers had to inspect and patrol all dwellings to make sure no French soldiers were hiding out. Looting was forbidden, but when no one was looking, the soldiers filled their pockets with whatever they could carry away. At night, Franz was shocked when he saw the jewelry, watches, and other trinkets the men had stolen. Proudly, they compared their loot as they bragged about discovering the homeowner's secret hiding places. Franz felt he had to say something. You're upright men at home, he said. You have wives and children. At home you wouldn't steal. Don't let the war change your values and cause you to become thieves here. What would your families think of you? The men turned away shamefacedly and began to undress for bed in the strained silence. As he himself undressed, Franz felt a small, unfamiliar shape in his pocket. What could it be? He reached into the pocket and drew out a small spool of thread. Where had he picked that up? Suddenly Franz remembered, and his body turned warm with shame. That morning he had entered a little gray house. He'd searched the kitchen and bedrooms and had found nothing, just a moldy, half-eaten loaf of bread, bureau drawers pulled open, beds unmade, all signs of a hasty departure. He had ascended a narrow, creaking staircase and was searching the attic when he discovered a little girl's half-finished dress in a sewing machine. A spool of black thread still stood on the spindle. Thread was scarce in Germany, and he knew Helena could make good use of it at home. He slipped it into his pocket and forgot all about it. Until now. Franz was guilty of the same sin he had just condemned in the others. The Bible reader and carrot eater was also the hypocrite. He fell to his knees, overcome with remorse. Oh God, I've done wrong, he prayed. I didn't think. I didn't think, Lord. I'm no better than they are. Please forgive me. I'll make it right. He found little rest on his pillow that night. The next morning, Franz searched out the little gray house, climbed to the attic, and slid the spool back on the spindle. He left much lighter than when he came. He knew, of course, that another looter would come along and most likely take the entire sewing machine and the thread along with it. He knew that when the owners finally returned, they would find nothing left. But when Franz crept away from that attic the second time, he left behind all desire for that which was not his. He'd walked away from the black strands of covetousness that bind the soul. In June 1940, orders came for the pioneers to transfer to Poland. 
military trains emblazoned with the blood-red swastika and bearing the slogan, Reide rollen für den Sieg, wheels roll for victory, transported them into southeast Poland. Stationed in the towns of Lublin, Tereszpol, and Travniki, the men enjoyed moderate comfort. They couldn't help noticing, though, that the country peasants lived in abject poverty. Their homes were mud huts with straw roofs and no electricity. Water was drawn out of a communal well in typical Eastern fashion by lowering a long pole until the container at the end hit water. With a wooden yoke across their shoulders, women carried two buckets of water at a time back to their huts. Adults and children alike were barefoot. Only on Sundays, for their trip to church, did they take shoes, and even then they tied the laces together and hung them around their necks until they were within a hundred yards of the church before putting them on. In Poland, Hauptmann Brandt decided to make more use of Franz Hassel's expertise in typing, office work, and organizational skills acquired during years of doing literature, evangelist, and publishing work. So now Franz found himself promoted to Obergefreite, first company clerk. With the new assignment came privileges. Like other officers in the German army, he was no longer required to carry the standard military-issue rifle, but could select a firearm of his choice. To the envy of his comrades, Franz immediately turned in his rifle in favor of a lightweight revolver, which he inserted in his trouser belt. Now his work was even more exclusively indoors. In the bitter cold of winter his office was always warm and comfortable. But the privilege he appreciated the most was that he could arrange his work schedule in such a way that he always had Sabbath off. The war's second Christmas arrived while the pioneers were stationed in Krasnistov. Again, trestle tables were set up for the celebration. Each soldier received a raisin-studded Christmas cake and a bottle of wine. This time, however, Franz didn't have to bring his own drink. By his place stood a bottle of grape juice. However, the military mood wasn't optimistic. Last Yuletide, everyone had been mildly surprised that the war wasn't over. This time, there were definite signals that the end was not in sight. Even though Germany and Russia had signed a non-aggression pact, dark rumors seeped through the ranks. Hitler was planning an attack on that country. And there was all too ominous evidence to support this. For one thing, the pioneers had received strict orders to evacuate all Polish civilians from the towns located on the banks of the River Bug, which formed part of the Poland-Russia border. Also, the pioneers were ordered to secretly collect bridge-building materials and to stockpile them behind the waterfront houses while the unsuspecting Russian soldiers on the other side of the river performed their guard duty. The reasoning was obvious. If Germany declared war on Russia and the Russians blew up the bridges, the pioneers could immediately rebuild them so the advance could continue. At 3 o'clock on the morning of June 22, 1941, the rumors came true. Hitler launched the invasion of Russia along its Polish border. The Russians, lulled into a false security by the German-Russian peace treaty, offered no resistance. Totally surprised by the attack, they didn't even have time to dynamite the bridges. Yet in spite of this auspicious beginning, Franz had a presentiment that unlike the earlier, easier conquests of the West, this battle would be long and bloody. He recommitted his life to God and felt reassured that he was in God's care. One more thing to do now, Franz said to himself. I've put it off long enough. 
Now there's no time to waste. He hurried into the town to the carpenter shop. Give me a piece of paper, would you? He asked the owner. On it he carefully drew a shape, which looked like a bracket used to support a wall shelf. Could you cut me a piece of wood into that shape? And would you take this soap and chocolate and trade for it? The edges of the craftsman's eyes crinkled with delight. Sure. As the man began to work, Franz stationed himself by the window and watched the people passing on the sidewalk. He'd planned this moment for a long time, and he couldn't afford to be found out now. Hurry, 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 he found himself mentally repeating the words again and again. Here you are, said the carpenter finally. Franz thanked him and slipped the crudely made gadget into his inside pocket. After glancing both ways, he left the shop. Back in his office, he took out his pocket knife and began whittling the angled piece of wood until the corners were rounded. Then he opened a tin of boot polish and blackened it until it gleamed. He opened his desk drawer, buried the device under a pile of papers, and made his way to the company cobbler. Walter, he said, I have a feeling that we will be ordered into Russia soon. I'm finding it a little inconvenient to carry my revolver in my belt. Do you think you could make me a standard-issue holster? No problem, Franz, Walter said. Come back tomorrow. I'll have it ready for you. The next day, Franz picked up his revolver holster, expertly crafted out of black leather. Only one task remained. Late that night, under the cover of darkness, he slipped his military-issue revolver into his holster and made his way to the edge of town where he had noticed a small lake. Once there, he reached into his holster and took out the gun. At that exact moment, he heard German voices, soldiers on guard duty. In all his careful planning, he had forgotten about the guards. Beads of sweat ran down his face as he crouched behind some bushes. His thoughts and his prayers mingled. Lord, don't let me be caught. Why is it taking them so long to get here? Here they come. Be still. Stop breathing. Lord, be with me now. They're stopping. They've spotted me. No, one of them is just lighting a cigarette. Wolfgang, said one of the soldiers. Did you hear something just now? Ah, it's just a rabbit. Don't be so jumpy, man. They passed on. Franz waited a few minutes, then stood up. He took a firm grip on the revolver barrel, and with one mighty swing of his arm threw it far into the pond. The splash sounded deafening. Wolfgang, what was that noise? I don't know. It's in the water, I think. The guards came running back, their flashlight beams playing over the ground. If they find me now, I'm lost. While Franz was lying flat on his stomach, not daring to breathe, the guards walked within an arm's length of him. Wolfgang shouted, Who goes there? They waited in silence for a while. Then the other guard chuckled. Must have been a fish jumping. I don't know, Wolfgang said dubiously. I thought I saw something move. An eternity later, the men moved on and finally disappeared into the distance. Trembling and whispering prayers of gratitude, Franz ran back to the camp and into his office. There he took the black polished bracket out of his drawer, thrust it into his holster, and buttoned the flap. This would be the only weapon he carried in the war. Lord, he prayed, this is my way of showing you that I am serious about not wanting to kill anyone. I evidently have some natural marksmanship skills, so I don't trust myself with a weapon. Yet now, with this piece of wood, if I am attacked, I have no way of defending myself. I must trust you to be my protector. 
My life is in your hands. Uneasily, Franz lay down on his cot. Fear would not let him sleep, not fear of facing a potential enemy, but fear of reprisals. He remembered sobering news he had heard several days ago. Ludwig Klein, a private in another company, had strolled into the kitchen of his unit carrying a bundle wrapped in burlap. What have you got there? asked the cook. A lump of butter. A lump? How much? Fifty pounds. The cook stared at him. I haven't received any butter rations in months. How could you come up with fifty pounds of butter in a starving country? Don't you know the orders against looting? You're crazy to take a risk like that. Don't worry, Ludwig chuckled. I didn't steal it. It's all above board. I traded for it. Traded what? A pistol. A weapon? Don't worry about it. The locals are good people. They only shoot at targets on shooting ranges. But that wasn't the end. The Major got wind of it, and Ludwig Klein was summarily executed the same evening. To give a weapon to the enemy was treason against the fatherland and punishable with death. How terrible that a German soldier had to perish by the hands of other Germans. Franz knew that if he were found out, he would meet the same fate. Crying out to God again, he finally fell asleep. On June 30th, the awaited order arrived. The pioneers were to enter Russia the following day. of Solemn Appeal Ministries, all rights reserved. For more information, please visit us at solemnappeal.com or call 1-888-449-1452.